The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah soft made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hi, everybody. This is Megan Judge, and you're listening to Judging Megan. Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to start out this episode talking about how excited I am that my six-year-old got to actually partake in going back to school. Um, I have never spent so much time with another human in my entire existence of my life. And yes, I love her so deeply, but uh, it was time. And, you know, we pulled in. She can only go back. We're still Zooming all the time, but she can only go back two days a week right now. And so, I mean, I'll take that because it's like legitimately been torture just being a Zoom mom for my six-year-old and my 10-year-old's pretty self-sufficient. But I went, I'm going to add in that I went through carpool. I did not run over a cone this time, thank God. And, you know, we pulled into the line. I I was letting her out of the car and she said, bye, mommy, I'm going to miss you. And I went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. She slammed the door and ran into school. She was so happy. And then I, I literally put, on my radio, I put the song Jump by the Pointer Sisters, and I was so excited. I drove home. I got to stop and get a coffee. I've never been so excited in my life. But yeah, and then by the end of the day, I kind of missed her again and was happy to see her. But I'm just going to add kids need to be in school. And yeah, let's all wear our masks and be safe, but they belong in school. So thanks for listening.
hi, everybody. Today, uh, my guest is a friend of mine, Brian Pote, that I've been friends with for, I mean, I don't even know how many years, Brian. How many years have we been friends? 20? Yeah, I'm going to say 20. Hi, everybody. Hi, Megan. Hi. <laughs> let's go with 20. I mean, yeah, it would be right when you, how long have you been with Ron? I've been with Ron for... Uh, 20 years. So yeah. I probably met you in a, a year into it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Brian um, is a very close friend of my husband, Ron, and myself, and we really consider him family. Uh, I brought Brian on today because I think his story is pretty incredible. It's a story of um, overcoming trauma and hardships and um, really working through childhood trauma and being able to come out the other side, which I think brings hope for everybody. So for you to get come on today and share your story, I really, really appreciate it, Brian. So thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I see you're wearing rainbows. Is that for me? I'm not wearing, you know what? That might just be the it's, reflection in the, oh, rainbows on my sleeve. Yeah, rainbows on your my, sleeve. So this is one of my favorite Aviator Nation sweatshirts. I love this one. They're it's so awesome. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so just a little backstory on what I will tell you on Brian is Brian um, was, has been a working actor for, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shave a skosh of your age off your life and pretend like you're younger, but for many years, Brian has been a working actor. He started on the famous show that's going to age all of us right now called Kids Incorporated, which I was obsessed with. <laughs> and um, wasn't, wasn't, um, who was on that? Uh, oh my gosh. So Martika. Uh -huh. So anyone who's like a toy soldiers. Love that song. Yeah. Um, so Martika was on it. I had a huge like, you know, gay boy crush on her as a kid. I, I basically just wanted to be her. Um, but then also Stacey Ferguson, who is um, Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas. So that's probably the most famous Kids Incorporated person. That's so cool. And then I Jennifer Love Hewitt, Mario yeah. Lopez. Um, yeah. And then... I'll got, I'll got your start on Kids Incorporated. Yeah. <clears throat> So, yeah. um, and then there were other people like kids that, you know, like Scott Grimes and, you know, Scott, what's the guy from Party of Five? I've turned into my Oh mother. my God. I, I used to me. love him. Scott. Yeah. Oh, he was so cute. I can't remember his last name. But yeah, <laughs> I must have loved him that so much. So he was, yeah, they all guest starred on those things yeah. back then. Yeah. Oh, that's so and We were funny. like the first Disney Channel show before the Mickey Mouse Club, you know? Yeah, that's huge. And yeah. and people of our age group, like I can remember watching that and it was like a really big deal. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so Brian, um, you know, has grown up in the Los Angeles area. He's living outside of Los Angeles now and we're going to kind of go into it. But Brian had done, um, has done numerous TV shows and movies, etc. But I was introduced to Brian because my husband, Ron, and Brian worked on a TV show together. Um, what was, it was Merlin. It was, it a was pilot. called Merlin, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which and is, they, yeah, it was sort of like a Buffy the yeah, Vampire Slayer. Yeah, tell, tell the story, because I love that story. It's like one of my favorite stories, how you guys met and became friends on the plane. 
Oh yeah. Oh God. Oh yeah. Okay. So I was, um, I mean, if you can't tell from my voice and the story so far, I'm a gay person. Um, I didn't know that. The yeah. reference really, really <laughs> did not say anything. Um, yeah. And, and so back then, I mean, it was like, you know, we were in the nineties. I think we did that show in 1998 and, and I was out to a lot of people at the time and, and, and the roles that I played were usually like the best friend or the sidekick or, a, you know, sometimes I would get a lead role, but it was usually not, I was never a romantic lead. So I, ne- I was never worried about like being, you know, outed or, or, you know, everybody knew I was gay sort of, and unless they didn't. And so I think when I met Ron, Ron didn't know, I don't think. And on the plane, I was, I had a huge crush on, <sighs> Carrie Russell, like Felicity was a huge show at the time. Yeah, I remember. And we were flying on the plane to go, and this might not be the story that you're talking about. I was okay. obsessed that Carrie Russell was like in front of us on the plane. I could not stop like crushing on her. Yeah. Um, even though, even though I'm like the gayest person alive, except for you. <laughs> you're, like, the, you're, the, you're the only, <laughs> you're like <laughs> a gay man trapped in. <laughs> <laughs> oh me oh, oh yeah that's, that's my I mean that's my like thing I mean just to backpedal a little bit I I'm having Brian on Brian is we're kind of skipping over stuff but he's he has been a working actor his whole like life up to, through adulthood and then recently in the past two years retired from acting because it's such a difficult business. And, you know, a lot of times people have to get to this place. I retired from pursuing acting, even though I basically had like, never did anything except I was a very good theater actress. I will add that. Um, but I gave, <laughs> I gave up in my late twenties, like I would say 30 and then went into sales, but you know, it's a, it's a very, very difficult life. And it's, um, it's a lot of, a lot of no's and being told you're not good enough. And basically like every audition that you don't get is like feeling like you were just dumped. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. Yeah, of course. I, but I got used to the rejection. You just get so used to it, you know, and, and it sort of doesn't, I got to a place where it didn't phase me very much. Um, yeah. But there's all kinds of weird mind tricks that I found myself doing. And Ron had a bunch of tricks to like, and to get back to Ron, like I met Ron on that set and we just became like best friends. Like he was the brother I never really had. Um, you know, he's just super funny, super sweet. I just, I love Ron so much and I'm so glad that I got to meet you through him. And, you know, we, we had big plans for that show. That show was like a huge thing at NBC. Um, you know, it was produced by the, uh, the producers that ended up doing like CS, all the CSIs. Um, and then the Transformer movies as well. So Tom DeSanto was a producer. Um, Josh Berman was a producer. And something happened at NBC that year. And we, the, everyone at NBC got fired. <laughs> and yeah. so we were one of their shows that um, was going to, we were going to replace Freaks and Geeks at the time. So we were a mid-season replacement, kind of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of a thing. Ron played Merlin, like this, yeah. this new age kind of modern Merlin. It happened, but it was great. We've shot in Toronto. We had, pl- we were buying property in our heads up there. We were planning on moving up there. I mean, it was all sort of in the, in the bag. And, 
And at the time, my roommate was Linda Cardellini, and she was playing Lindsay Weir on Freaks and Geeks. And so they were getting they were getting canceled slowly by the network, even though they were huge, critically acclaimed show. Like it's like every week they would they they weren't getting reordered. They yeah. were getting like two episodes, one episode. They weren't getting bought. And so as her show was kind of like not doing so well, like by the network standards, our show was like moving, we were going to replace them. And what ended up happening before any of that all went down is that everybody at NBC got fired. Our show got canned, her show got canned. And, uh, and, and that was, that was the beginning of the end of my, <laughs> my career. <laughs> made a joke about me being a gay man trapped in a woman's body. I say it all the time. I am a hundred percent, but I'm a gay Jewish man trapped in a woman's body. And I love matzo ball soup. I grew up my, my best friend, my neighbor growing up, I would go to every Jewish holiday. I was always jealous about, you know, Hanukkah being seven nights and Christmas one, but I've always related to gay men. Like, from the time I was a little girl doing theater, you know, and, and hearing their stories and, um, and then my best friends, like in my, in my life to this day, most of them happen to be gay men. (laughs) So those are my people. And so part of the reason I brought you on today was to tell your story of coming out, talk about your acting career and retiring. Um, and then also, you know, what an amazing thing you're doing now that you you are an activist and advocate for LGBTQIA+. And, um, you know, I'm going to tell you this, Brian, you are such a great human and I love you so much. And I'm just like, you're one of those people that has come out the other side. And yeah, life's always going to be hard. And I have talked about this. It's like, we're not done. There's always going to be, you know, you come out the other side and your life's all about peaks and valleys and you're in a valley again. But a huge thing in my life is equality and, and my friendships, you know, with the gay community throughout my life are my, I'm getting emotional or so me. And, um, and I just want you to know, I'm really proud of you and what you're doing. You're genuinely helping people. So can you you talk about a little bit what happened? So basically going back to your acting career and some of the shows you're known for what CSI, you were on that for a while. Yes. So, um, CSI Miami, I think maybe most notably, like probably the most famous like character I ever played was on six feet under when I played. You were amazing. And that was the best. But it was only the first season, but it was right after Matthew Shepard had been killed. And so the character that I played was basically just Matthew Shepard. Like, um, it was the first season of six feet under. I was so lucky to, to work with, um, Michael C. Hall and, and, um, you know, uh, nobody knew what, what that show would be. I mean, it had never aired. We shot all the episodes before it ever premiered on HBO. I think at the, at the time, the only thing that HBO really had, I mean, it was huge, but it was The Sopranos. And so, you know, this was kind of a sophomore effort. It was, the, it was right in the beginning of cable, like, 
episodic television. Like nobody knew like what this thing was going to be. But by the time my episode aired, it was the most critically acclaimed show on television. Everybody was bought in fully. And my episode was, um, it was a two episode arc for the season finale where, you know, I had been beaten to death and gay bashed and I was, you know, forcing their main character to come out to his family by just haunting him and terrorizing him <laughs> in a full face of gore makeup for, for two episodes. But that was, um, it was unbelievable. It, that, that, that episode, those two episodes, I can remember be like just watching them and being like, Oh my God, like, we know a lot of actors in this town, you know, or I, both of us do just from living here for so long. And, you know, like sometimes you'll see somebody on a show that, you know, and you're like, Oh, that was good. <laughs> you don't really know. Like they weren't maybe that great. Like you're not one of them. Like you're, you're such a tremendously talented actor and telling that story was really huge because like you said, that was when, you know, gay men and women, I would say more so gay men, really were starting to be seen on TV, right? Yeah. And I think at the time, like, I remember getting the job and I was up against Ian Summerholder and I thought, there's no way I'm going to get this job. I mean, Ian's on, you know, Ian had been sort of famous and has had a huge career and he's better looking than me and they never hire a gay, hire a gay person anyway to play a gay character. Like, that's kind of my issue as a queer person is that people knew I was out and, and, and I oftentimes didn't play gay characters. I would get like the quirky straight sidekick or sexless sort of amorphous person. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if they usually hired Ron to play a gay person. <laughs> yeah, Ron plays, Ron is not gay, um, but we, you know, we definitely. But he plays one on TV. He does play one on TV often. And that's something I love about Ron. One of my, favorite things about my husband is that he's so accepting of, you know, everyone. He's not like, there's a lot of straight men. I dated some when I was younger and, you know, just knowing me, I, I had, I always had gay people around me and they, you know, you would hear like little comments or, you know, it's really just not being comfortable in their own skin. Right. And yeah. Ron has always been accepting of everyone. And, you know, and I love him for that. But yeah, you're right. He has played quite a few gay characters. And we his- would go out for the same gay character. And I would be like, <laughs> oh, you're totally going to get this. Because there's a love scene and nobody wants to see me with my shirt off. Like, that's just going to, it's just going to be the. <laughs> but do you think, do you think that that's changing now that. Um, oh, yeah. That, that, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. you see Boys in the Band. It was amazing. And, yeah. it, and it was so, um, it was so great to see an all gay cast. Yeah. you know, which was huge. It's, it's certainly changing. It, it's, it's amazing that people can be out, you know, and be who they are and, you know, have lead roles and be visible, not only just on, you know, TV, but in real life too. There's not this, you know, sort of double life that people have to lead. And, you know, that's really damaging for, for, for young people to hear rumors that somebody's gay, but they can't come out because it's not safe. So a lot of that has changed. Um, it's still, you know, we see a lot of really great representation in the media for trans folks and especially, you know, trans women of color are always the leaders in this, um, you know, you know, in the movement of visibility. And there's a lot of really great documentaries out there right now. Visible is one of them. And, 
there's just a lot I had to learn. And I've, you know, you mentioned me coming an activist and, and I don't, I'm not an actor anymore. And I do run like a small LGBT center in my hometown, which is so, I mean, talk about like, that could be its own, like made for TV movie. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, what I've learned, you know, because I am a white person I identified as a gay man most of my life. I would probably identify now as a non-binary queer person. And I didn't have that language before. I briefly talked to you yesterday and I think I'm pretty, I tried my best to try and understand the LGBT community, but there's, there's terminology that, you know, it's like, People are afraid to ask questions right. because they don't want to offend people. That's just in general. But why, can you explain what you just said so people yeah. can understand? So, um, yeah, I mean, as a kid, I mean, growing up, you only I only knew there were two choices. I mean, you were either a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. You were straight or gay. That's it. And And somewhere in between was bisexuality. But you know, at the time and sort of the myth of bisexuality and it's really damaging to bisexual folks is that it's just like a stopping point on, on the, on the train to becoming a gay person. Right. Which is a total like lie there, you know, bisexuality is, is a real thing. And so for me, I just didn't know, like, I was like, well, I don't feel, I guess I'm a gay man. Like there were no other, there was not enough language, you know, and, and it wasn't that it didn't fit. It made sense because I'm attracted to men and, and there was no other word to call me except a gay man. But my whole life, I never really felt like a man, you know, and, and not that I'm a trans person. I, I don't feel like I'm a woman either. I just, I didn't feel like what, society was telling me a man is supposed to feel, think, do, like, look like, talk like, act like, walk like, dress like. I mean, when I wear a suit, I feel like I am in drag. Like, I can't explain it to you. Yeah. And so I didn't have the language, but now that I work with kids Uh who are on the internet all day long, and they've got all kinds of language for how they feel and, you know, gender and sexual orientation and, you know, is all a spectrum, you know, not every man is the same amount of masculine, not every female is the same amount of feminine. And all of that crap is dictated to us by the media, the culture of the time we live in. So, you know, what we're taught a man is supposed to be is not what our fathers or grandfathers or, you know, all of that stuff is just kind of passed down. So, and, and women really get the short end of the stick in every regard in terms of, you know, that standard of beauty and femininity and all that crap gets passed on to trans folks that, you know, have a really difficult time if they transition late, you know, with passing, you know, it's, it's really hard. And especially in our area, there's, there's not a lot of resources, you know, for trans folks that want to want to transition medically or So those are things that I've learned as just recently, because I was very comfortable living in Los Angeles. You know, you talk about having a lot of gay friends. It was never a big deal. You know, I could be who I was. I could have a boyfriend. I could still be a working actor. It never affected my life. I never had any negative consequences for being gay. Um, Probably because I'm white and probably because I'm male and probably because whatever, right? I can also pass. So I didn't know until I moved home like five years ago when my sister was dying of 
cancer, yeah. you know, that that's not what it's like everywhere. You know, my hometown still was a very unsafe, unaccepting, unwelcoming, terrifying place. I mean, I, for me as an adult, I was four years old when I moved back home and the only place I felt safe was Target or do Starbucks. You, do you think, um, like what, what age, you know, you're saying you knew that you were gay because those were the, you could either be gay, straight or bisexual, those three things, those were the titles or whatever people thought back then. And now we have, we know so much more. What was it like for you to come out? You know, was that difficult? I mean, I know you went to Loyola Mary. <laughs> um, yeah. Was it, because that's such a huge thing, you know, um, just when I was young, I remember I did, I sang and danced on this like cruise ship and, um, and it was, um, went up into the uh, spirit of Washington and it was myself and, um, and just, I was all gay guys myself and like two girls and we did a bunch of, we did shows and it was the best summer of my life. I loved it so deeply because I really got close to the, my cast members and the people I was working with. And I can remember going out to drinks um, on the Potomac River with a, the, a bunch of my friends that I had made. And my one friend, you know, told me this story about how he went to this, you know, very prestigious college and he was in a fraternity and he had to fake it and he had to fake it because he was from the South with his parents and he had to fake it with everybody and he knew fairly young. And he said, and it got to the point where I wanted to end my life. And so when he told me this story, like I, he's just, he was just, a, I don't even know what happened to him. I love this guy, but um, he was a very deep person and a very real person to be able to share that. And then when you think about it, like just, you know, I was born being into men, you know, like I had crushes mm -hmm. in kindergarten. Same. And, you know, I'm yeah. Telling, like you asked, how did I know? Because yeah. I was kissing the yeah. television when the Dukes of Hazard was on. I was like five <laughs> or six years old. I yeah. wanted to be married to Bo Duke, John Schneider. Oh yeah. John so Schneider my parents were like, what the hell is this? Like why, you know, yeah. what is wrong with this kid? They thought it was kind of weird and cute and, but yeah, coming out is, is always a, a process. And yeah. And you talk about pretending like, you know, I think we talked about this before, you know, I was such, I was an actor from a very young age, you know, and, and acting really saved my life. I, I have a very, very long history with child sexual abuse and um, some very difficult situations in my childhood. And, you know, my dad would drank very heavily because they, my parents were in a very unhappy marriage and um, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction and all of that stuff runs in my family. Um, and then there was the child sexual abuse that started at like six, right. And continued until, until really I started acting. And so I had always thought, you know, if I'm famous or if I'm in front of people or if I'm an actor or if I'm on stage or on set, nobody can hurt me because I'm the center of attention. I'm in front of everybody. I'm either on stage or in front of lights. All the lights are on me. All the attention's on me. Nobody can hurt me if I'm front and center. And, and so, you're throwing yourself into a character. 
So right. it's like so I was used to pretending. Person. Yeah, and getting yeah. going into a character. Um, do you do do you mind talking about the sexual abuse um, and going a little bit more into that? Sure. I was a you know I was abused by two older boys um, that were part of our family, and um, it happened from the time I was about six years old is the first time I can remember. Um, but through therapy, cause you know, you know me, I've been in therapy for like 20 years. Um, thank God for therapy. Yeah. Thank God. Um, but it started at six. And I think the very last time it happened, I was 14. Um, and because it was family or, you know, it was also sort of, it was really incest, right? So there's all of this, um, there was all of this shame that I never really dealt with. Like I just kind of pushed it away, you know, and there was a lot of confusion too, because I was clearly different. I didn't feel like a boy. I didn't feel like a man. I knew I was gay. And I sort of thought like, oh, well that they, this must have happened because I'm gay. Right. Mm -hmm. Then there was this sort of part of my life where I thought, well, maybe I'm gay because this happened to me. And I know that that's a very common thing as well. So that took a long time to kind of tease out, but all of that, I'm, I, I can't believe I haven't cussed yet on your podcast. You're allowed. <laughs> that stuff did not come up for me until much later. I mean, till I, and I was not dealing with that stuff. You know, I was, I thought, oh, that's just something that happened to me. It did not define my life. I am, I'm a famous actor. Look what I've done with my life. F those people pretty much like see what I've done. Um, until I, I, I was sort of at the pinnacle of my career and I had gotten everything I wanted. And, and that's when like my alcoholism and, and all of that stuff, the alcohol and the drugs and the, you know, just the whole thing just kind of was starting to tear me down. And it was all around um, not dealing with, you know, what had happened in my childhood. And, and at the time I couldn't put the two to two and two together until I got into therapy and, and, and we had to, and it took years. I mean, I was, I was in a six year group with this, this um, therapist in Los Angeles. Her name is Dr. Arlene Drake. And she saved my life. I mean, she, She's been running um, recovery groups for, for victims of sexual abuse and neglect for, for many years. And I was in that group uh, twice a week for six years. Um, you, did you put down the memory? Did you, because a lot of sexual abuse survivors, uh, they don't like they're, they could be triggered by something. So did you know it happened? Were you aware of it or was it something that you had flashbacks and you remembered it? I knew it had happened <clears throat> and I had sort of like in my own, you know, naivete or however you say that word, um, had just thought that I was a bigger person and I was moving on with my life and it didn't affect me. Um, but as I got older, um, there were lots of memories and lots of grief and lots of shame. And, um, and for me, because I had been victimized at such an early age and sexualized at such an early age, it was really 
it really colored all of my relationships. So I was, that's really early age to be sexualized and to attach yourself to people sexually. So that's how I learned to attach was that I'm only valuable if I'm attractive or I'm only valuable if um, somebody wants me or needs me. Um, and so I used that not knowing it throughout my adult life. So, um, I always had a boyfriend. I was always in a relationship and I was never fulfilled because it wasn't the relationship that was going to fulfill me. I needed to heal this hole in my heart that had been, you know, I'm going to cry, but, um, you know, had been destroyed, you know, at such an early age. Um, and because I was so resilient and such a good actor, I think it really saved me, um, until it stopped working and it stopped working right when my career took off. I mean, it really stopped working and, and I don't know, I, it just was so, I, I couldn't rationalize it. It didn't make sense on paper because here I am getting everything I've ever wanted. My career has never been better. I'm on the number one television show in the, you know, in the world at the time for the first three years, CSI Miami was number one in the world. And I was miserable and I couldn't stop drinking and I couldn't stop doing drugs and I couldn't stop cheating on my partner and I couldn't stop disappearing. And, um, so by the time that got that bad, you know, I was, um, you know, I had drank every day for 10 years. I was starting to black out. I drove every night drunk. I'd never hit anybody. Uh, thank God. Um, you know, but then the alcohol stopped working. I started blacking out. And so I had to move on to other things. So drugs became part of that story. And, you know, and, and all of the things you hear, like I swore I'd never drink before I drove and I swore I'd never do drugs before I went to work and all of that stuff just, it was so out of control and all of it. Um, I think stemmed from this inability to, to sit with the pain and have somebody to talk to about it. Yeah. I understand that. What's interesting about what you said is, um, you know, I mean, I tend to turn to alcohol, you know, especially like during COVID. And I mean, I've always been a wine drinker. I love, I love me some buttery Chardonnay. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I can completely relate to pushing down those feelings and, you know, being like, you know, I had had my babies and I married my husband, who's the love of my life. And I, you know, and I had a good job and I had this and I had that. And I was like, well, I have everything. And then something, you know, the stuff like in the past year and a half started happening. And I realized that I was pushing memories down, like, just like you did, you know, and, you know, to be able to, some people, Brian, in life never get to the place that you were able to get to, which is to be able to, you know, say, go into recovery and, and, and move on. And, you know, like you have a new like your partner, soon to be husband, Jay, you're happy, so happy now. And like, what a gift it is. And I understand, but I understand that pain too, because as a woman and a girl, you know, living in an abusive household, and I always was 
had to use my like sexuality and my looks to get what I wanted when I was young, whether it be like working in the clubs in West Hollywood and like dating, you know, famous people or whatever it was, I had to, I can completely relate to that. And And it becomes a skill. It becomes a skill set that you fall back on. And what what's scary is, and I'm sure I don't want to, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but as women or as gay men, eventually that skill set no longer works as well as it used to because of ageism or whatever, right? There's always someone younger. There's always someone cuter. There's always someone. And so as those superpowers that I worked, used through life to get what I needed started to kind of not work as much anymore, I had no other resources. I didn't use my brain for anything. I had gone to college. I was, I was a super smart kid and all I had done for the past like 20 years in Los Angeles was use my looks and my wit and my charm to get all the shit I needed from life. Yeah, get a and job, and get like, a house, get a boyfriend, get a... And I was... When that started to like be removed from me because of my age or people expect you to be an adult because you're an adult, you know, and charm doesn't work as much anymore. And and I'm a mess because I'm, I'm drinking and using drugs all the time and I weigh a hundred and... I weighed 119 pounds when I um, stopped doing drugs. I remember remember seeing you and, you know, I remember how How sick I was, how upsetting it was to see you like that. And, you know, um, what you say about like growing up, you know, like I'm getting older. I'm not like as cute as I used to be. Um, (laughs) And like when I go to the grocery store now and somebody like, maybe once in a blue moon may hit on me. I like have to do like double takes and be like, are you looking at me? Like what's wrong with you? I'm oh, I know. <laughs> that, that part where you yeah. become invisible and it happens overnight and you're like, yeah. why does anybody, am I not at Starbucks right now trying to order coffee? Like, yeah. You, Cause, yeah, you, cause, you, cause you're like used to like using that part of like, that was a power. Like you said, it was a superpower. It was a superpower of mine. I was the best flirt. I could like get men to do things for me and it was fun. But then you have to get to a place, you know, when you turn a certain age or whatever, some people never will learn it, you know, and they're just like lucky because they learn to like appreciate themselves, not for what's on the outside, yeah, but to grow from the inside. And that's what, you know, it's a lesson in life. You know, and it's. And I think, I mean, I know you, I've known you long enough, and I think we're very similar in this way. Like, I never used that superpower. I didn't know I had it until it was gone. Like, there was never like this conscious thought of, like, oh, yeah, I'm, because I had terrible self esteem. So it wasn't ever like I was walking in someplace thinking, oh, I can, I can get this and I can get that and I can manipulate that person. It was just second nature to me. Those were my life skills. And so, um, I started, I started to notice that they did, my life skills weren't working anymore. And, I did. and so that also helped me get into therapy. And, but yeah, like you said before, and I've heard all your podcasts so far, like, I love how honest you are and, and, and transparent you are about your, your mental health journey. And I've been on medication. I've been off medication. I've seen therapists. I've done hypnosis. I've done EMDR. I've done everything that I could do. Because I, at some point in my life, um, 
I, I, I never got to a point where I wanted to kill myself, but I didn't want to exist anymore. And I didn't have language for that. I did not want to be on this planet. And the thing that shifted all of that for me was when my sister was dying. Because yeah. here I was. Talk about, talk about yeah. Michelle. And I know it's hard for you. And Bri, you know what? It's okay to cry. Like I cry all the time. You know, I know how much you loved your sister. She was a very, very special lady. And I know if this is hard to get through, I know that she struggled, you know, with cancer for many years and how hard that was for you. Can you, can you talk about it? Oh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's you know, hard it's to funny. talk about these things because it's, it's so funny. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. So I haven't, you know, it's, it's, it's weird, you know, it's still very new. And, you know, my sister, my sister was my best friend, you know, she was 14 years older than me, you know, ever since I was a little kid, my mom, my mom was a little bit older when she had me at the time in the seventies. So my mom was like 33 when she had me, but at the time that was ancient. So that was old back then. Yeah. yeah. You know, and um, so my sister was always like a second mom, you know, and she was the fun mom, right? My mom was the real mom <laughs> and she had to put down the rules and raise a kid by herself because my dad, you know, my dad was out of the picture at some point. And, and so my mom was a very, you know, very, um, I don't want to say strict, but my mom was my mom and my sister was like my fantasy of what a mom could be if she was younger and, and more fun and didn't have rules. And so my sister was always like, I just, my fantasy, you know, I loved her so much. And, and, um, you know, she was just the nicest person. And I've heard you say this before, like she, um, about your friend, Julie, like, when you describe Julie and how, and the impact that she had on people, that's the impact my sister had on people is this, she was just a kind, beautiful, a, a, just a, 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 just a perfect human, you know? And, um, and, and, and do you think like knowing, I mean, I know this is hard for you to talk about, but you know, I know like we talk about faith and, and how important faith is in my life. And I know faith is important to you. Um, and just knowing that and believing that Michelle is with a higher power, you know, and in a, in a better place. And just because we can't see them doesn't mean that they're not with us, you know. And, you know, I, I, something important, too, is just having faith. And the stigma also, not just to pivot a little bit, that we've talked about for being a gay yeah. man or a gay woman or trans or whatever it be. And there's such a label on, you know, oh, you, you, you're, um, you're gay, so you can't be a Christian. You can't have right. faith. And that's wrong. And you know that's wrong. I know that's wrong. And it's so unfair because do you want to talk about that and sure. how like faith has kind of gotten you through the, the loss of Michelle and, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, faith has always been a really important part of my life. I've been through different stages of that. You know, I grew up going to, you know, Christian schools and I went to a Quaker school. We moved around a lot and I went to a lot. I was sort of not indoctrinated, but I had a lot of education around what God would be and, 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 and right. Just sort of Christian centric. And then I went to a Jesuit college but during college, I totally was like, I'm not going to church. I'm not praying. I'm just going to be a kid. Um, but my whole life, I've really felt connected to something. Mm-hmm. And, and at times, I would call that intuition or a gut feeling. Or I'm also very empathetic because of being an actor and also being a victim. Victims are very empathetic because we use that superpower of empathy to gauge if we're safe or not. You know, if are we safe with this person, I have to know what you're feeling. So if you're good, I'm good, you know, um, but my faith, um, I, I had to, I, I mean, I had to rely on a higher power so that I could stop doing drugs. Right. I, yeah. I couldn't do it on my own. Um, I couldn't stop drinking on my own. So my faith really came back, you know, with recovery, um, and then, you know, when my sister got sick, my sister was, was, you know, I watched my sister get baptized in a, as an adult. And so we weren't brought up super religious, but as an adult, she, she had a renewed faith. And, and as she got sicker, her faith grew stronger. Um, you know, and I, I just, I know, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to say it other than these words. I know that when I, and no longer on this planet, that the first person I see, the first person I see is going to be my sister. I understand. Yeah. I feel, I feel that way. I feel that way about Julie. Yeah. You know, I feel that way. You know, that's some, something that keeps me, my faith up, you know, when I'm tempted to, Cause I can be a real pain in the ass and I'm very, very heavily flawed. Ron can tell you that (laughs) (laughs) with me this long, but he never does. Yes, he He does say anything bad about you. Oh my gosh. Well, I just think I feel so similar to you because I will say that I'm just like, I have to keep on track. I have to like, keep going and doing things like, you know, to keep going so I can get to the, hopefully get to that place to know that I'm going to see my dad and my sister and, you know, Julie will be waiting. Hopefully not mad at me for all the messes up I've done since she left the planet. But I, I understand Brian. And I, and I think too that, uh, you know, she would be so proud of you and, just, you know, that, that was one of those, it's something that had to get you back to Tulare to do what you're doing now. So but yeah, I mean, I moved home. The story is that I moved home to like be closer to my sister because she was very, very, very sick. And it was clear that you know, I was not doing well in Los Angeles. I had just gone through a divorce. I was living on my own. I wasn't working a lot. I think I was doing true blood at the time, but I wasn't happy. And my sister was sick and, and I went home for my birthday one year and I just never came back. And, um, I never went back to Los Angeles. I, I came home and, 
And, and that was that conversation, that pivotal point where, you know, here I was, I had everything I'd ever wanted uh, in life. I'd, I'd had this great career um, and things just weren't going my way for a while. I was in, in a dark place in my life and I just didn't want to be on the planet anymore. And I was complaining to my sister on my 39th birthday that I just didn't want to be here. And I remember her sitting in her living room saying to me, I just wish you could see it differently. She's like, I just, I just want to be here to see my, my son graduate junior high. You know, I just want to be here, you know, to see him graduate high school. I just want one more day, you know, I, and I didn't want another day. I couldn't sit in the pain of what it was like. And, and that was just all of the trauma I had never dealt with or all the trauma that I had accumulated. I just, I was pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And, and that moment I had with my sister, that was a seed that was planted, you know, to say, grow up, grow up. You know, your sister has never, she, you know, your sister hasn't, she never complained. She never complained. You know, even, the whole time she was sick. sick. Yeah, going no. throughout the treatment. I, it's not interesting though, because it's like, this is something that's in your brain. You can't really blame yourself for feeling like, I don't want to be here anymore. But it is a wake up and a, and a reminder how precious life is, you know? I mean, yeah. when my dad was sick with cancer and, you know, dying and fought those nine months to live, he same thing. He was like, I'm in a fight. I'm in a fight. I'm in a fight. I want to be here, you know? Um, so that, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. And, and then what, and so what you're doing now though, is you, so talk about where you are right now, really. Sure. If you don't mind quickly. We can talk about that. Yeah. So because that situation happened and I moved in with my sister um, you know, she really, we loved each other. You know, we, she loved me enough. She gave me a, a, a sort of a place to live and a place to kind of ground myself. And, and I moved back to my hometown and I was, I was here, here, and I had no, nothing to do. I wasn't acting anymore. I wasn't doing anything. And, and, um, and she was doing better and she didn't need my help all the time. And so I started to like, I worked for her at a music store and I worked as a substitute teacher. And I, I met some people here in, um, and they were gay people and lesbians and trans folks that, you know, just didn't have what I had in Los Angeles and no safe place, no place to call home. There was no community center. There's nothing here really. We decided like, hey, you know, um, what if we opened an LGBT center, you know, just a, a, a community center, just a space where people could drop in and say hi or grab a book or just sit down and be with people in a safe place. Um, and so we started talking about that in November of 2015. And by May of 2016, um, we, we had a fully functioning like center. It was very small. Can you talk about your center and what it's called in case anybody wants to yeah. look into it? Um, it's called the Source LGBT Center. Um, our website is thesourcelgbt.org. 
And we're right in the middle of California. We're in the most rural red part of the state. Um, but we serve three counties, Tulare, Kings, and Fresno. We serve like a geographic size of like Connecticut and Rhode Island. But we do all sorts of stuff now. We grew from like a 200 square foot space to a 2,500 square foot space. I'm now the full-time executive director there. I manage 10 staff. We run HIV programming. We provide access for people who can't afford their medications. We do peer support. We do free mental health. We do trans resources. We have a leadership academy that went to Ecuador last year. Like this is truly, and, and you've said this before, I think is like every bad thing that ever happened to me, every traumatic thing has been used for my benefit and to benefit other people. Like all of the childhood abuse, all of the stuff I learned in LA, all, all of how to run a, 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 a slightly successful career in Los Angeles transferred to running an organization here in my hometown. And so we're, we're now, you know, we're now really thriving. We, we have a pride um, in our, in my hometown. Um, we didn't have it this year, but um, we were going to have our fourth uh, annual pride festival that, you know, supports about 4,000 people. And that would, that didn't exist before, you know, this, this moving home and coming back and feeling really lost. And so there is hope. You said that, you know, there's always a new beginning and there are peaks and valleys. And I think it's really hard when you hit your peak so young, you know, like I never really had to try that hard. I kind of got everything I wanted. And, and, and when that stopped happening in my early late twenties and early thirties, I didn't have any skills. I didn't have any self-soothing. I didn't, I hadn't had enough like life experience because I'd always gotten everything. You know, I got to go to the college I wanted to go to. I got to be on the TV show I wanted to be on. And so when my desires didn't match up with what my life looked like, I literally had like a nervous breakdown. Like I felt like something was wrong with me. What is wrong with me that I can't produce the life that I want. Why can't I, because I'm not God, right? Yeah, but you know what? That happens to all of us. Yeah. And what what you've done um, is pretty unbelievable. I mean, just like we were talking briefly yesterday and you said, this is like, this is my calling. And by the way, you were like, if anybody wants to look at, look you up on IMDb, um, it's Brian, B-R-I-A-N-P-O-T-H. And you're an incredibly gifted actor, but I believe that your calling is helping people like you're doing right now. And, and I believe that that's your calling. I called you when I heard your first episode and I said, you were made to do this. Aw, thanks, You were Brian. made to do this. Well, it makes me happy. I mean, I mean, what else do I have to do other than uh, sit in my sorrows in my in my bedroom and try to get <laughs> out of this and not like open the refrigerator and you know drink wine and take care of my kids and scream. This this is an outlet. So yeah, I just love you're, you're I love you so is- much. Your honesty and your heart, like when you talk to people, I can, you just, I, I missed you when I heard your, I, I called you because I couldn't not call you. I loved hearing you talk to people and I just couldn't wait to talk to you today. I, 
you know, thank you for saying those nice things. And, and I really do believe like this was what I was meant to do for now. Yeah. And, and, and I know that there's something else later, you know, yeah, we're not 108. There's still other stuff. Yeah. By the way, I could, I'm going to close with these final thoughts. Uh, Brian's soon to be husband, Jay. I love you, Jay. You're wonderful. Um, it's so nice to see you happy. And I love Brian's mom, Pat. Shout oh. out to Pat. Uh, but I did want to share really briefly uh, how much it means to me that people have reached out to me on my Instagram. My Instagram is at Judging Megan, um, M-E-G-H-A-N. If you want to reach out and tell me your stories or I've had a lot of people reach out to me and tell me things. And I just, I thank you so much because, you know, like selfishly, your stories help me heal. So um, I just wanted to thank my audience. And I really want to tell you that your family, Brian, I love you. I'm so proud of you. And in closing, keep living, keep praying, and keep growing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.